0: Hi and welcome to Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today on the show, Joseph Tetic of Trezor joins me to talk about Austrian economics, the liberty movement in Europe, as well as why Bitcoin hodling is rational. And we talk about various ideas around how banking might look in different visions of Bitcoin's future, as well as what most people are getting wrong about Gresham's law and his modification, the Nakamoto Gresham's law. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy Bitcoin and also learn about Bitcoin. Now, as you know, I'm working at Swan and we launched Swan Private because we have talked to so many people that had issues with the major exchanges. Some had accounts locked and customer service couldn't help them. Some couldn't onboard their accounts. Many have simply wanted to talk to an actual human being who could answer their Bitcoin questions, but they wouldn't get a reply or this just was not an option. Swan Private is our one-on-one Bitcoin advisory service for high net worth buyers. Our team is here to actually support you in your Bitcoin journey. You get guidance around self-custody practices. You get unlimited access to experts and seasoned hands. If you're a high net worth buyer or a business looking to stack Bitcoin, go to swanprivate.com. Are you interested in Bitcoin mining? Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through, and they have some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the mining industry. They've got Brains OS Plus. This is firmware for your ASIC machine. You can install this to get auto-tuning and get more hash rate for your electricity bill. So this is a great feature. And don't forget, if you use Brains OS Plus and then you point your hash rate towards SlushPool, the Bitcoin mining pool operated by Brains, you get 0% pool fees. So that's a great benefit for you. The team is growing fast and they are hiring. They've got all sorts of positions available. So if you go to the website, the careers page will show you the positions that are available. They also offer analysis on their insights dashboard, which I'll be discussing soon on the podcast. So that website is brains.com. That's brains with two eyes are you looking for some fiat liquidity without selling your bitcoin well check out lend at HodlHodl. hodl this is a peer-to-peer bitcoin backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stable coins globally and anonymously sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stablecoins without any verification users control collateral together in multi-signature escrow through that whole deal and all the interest is paid at the end now on the other hand if you have stable coins like USDT, you can lend them out at high returns. You're issuing over collateralized loans with the full interest guaranteed. So this might be an option if you're looking for some return on your stable coins. There are no hidden fees. The terms and conditions are transparent and the users control the keys in the deal in an escrow. So go and check it out. That's lend.hodl.com. Now onto the show. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Stefan. So Joseph, I've been reading uh, some of your work on Bitcoin magazine. You've been writing a little bit there. I know you're uh, over at Trezor as well. And you have a bit of a history in the liberty and Austrian movements as well. So let's start there with uh, some of your history in the libertarian and Austro-libertarian world.
1: All right. So for me, uh, the way, the path to libertarianism was quite straightforward because I was lucky enough to study at uh, the university of economics in prague at the faculty of economic policy and that was at the time it was like 2009 till 2011 when the faculty of economics uh, or the faculty of economic policy was heavily populated with austrian economists uh, there was josef Shima, professor Shima who uh organized the translation of Rod uh, of Mises' human action uh of stuff from Friedman, Hayek, Rothbard and he was like the head of the department there. So our textbook uh, on economics was actually Rothbard's Man, Economy and State. So we were heavily influenced uh, with uh, Austrian economics and I fell in love with that and after, after school me and some of my classmates founded the Czech Mises Institute which was just a copy of the American one. At that time a lot of uh, these local Mises institutes uh, sprang up around the world and our idea was to continue with the work that Liberal Institute in Czech Republic started with this, these publications of stuff from Austrian economists So we published stuff from Mises Bastiat uh, for a new liberty from Rothbard. We organized the summer school for high school students and university students. And it was just a way for us to keep in touch with uh, Austrian school and libertarianism while we were working uh, like ordinary corporate jobs.
0: So it was like your side project as a way to sustain education out there. And so where is that nowadays?
1: Well, I mentioned Liberal Institute that was founded in 1989 in Prague and around the time we founded the Mises Institute in 2010 the original institute uh, founded in 89 sort of uh, went into a coma because there were some internal struggles in the institute and our mises institute then basically took the job of educating people in austrian school and uh, libertarianism and when the problems were settled in the liberal institute when the internal struggle sort of resolved itself that was like 2016-17 we basically merged the two institutes because, uh, like Czech Republic, isn't so large that we need like multiple libertarian institutes. So we basically merged these two together, and uh, now it's still around in the form of Liberal Institute, and we keep on publishing like books that need to be published, and we keep on having uh, the summer school, and it's been like twelve years now when we had the summer school, and it produced some. Like very noteworthy Czech libertarians.
0: And in the time that it was operating, what was the main way of funding here? Was it through donors or was it just through everyone in the organization just chipping in some money? Like how was, how was that organization sustaining itself?
1: Yeah. So the main contribution was our time. We did it as our hobby and uh, we didn't uh, get any like wage from that. So. That was the main contribution and we didn't have any offices actually. It was, uh, it was, it was a website, a blog. We like published the books and the warehouse was like, like a flat of uh, my friend and we delivered the books by hand to a post office so it was like a, it had a really like a startup feel for years and we had some donors some private donors uh, which really helped us in publishing the books and having like the basic capital for printing like a thousand books and then it sustained itself from the sales of the books mostly
0: and then obviously being an austro libertarian that is a libertarian who comes from that austrian school of economics Obviously, you would have been very well primed when you came across Bitcoin, right? Was that so pre, uh, presumably that was your connection? That was how you came across Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, that's right. Actually, I heard like the first lecture or the first podcast on Bitcoin I heard uh, in, I believe, 2011. That was Econ Talk, Russ Roberts. And then like the first lecture on Bitcoin in Czech uh, we had on our summer school in like 2012 and it didn't click for me back then we were like aware of uh, free banking of uh, the idea of controlling not of the state not controlling uh, our money supply and not defining the money uh, and it just clicked for me gradually in the like coming years in between 2012-2015 and yeah then basically we the czech austro austral libertarians became aware of uh, how the austrian school of economics is actually very compatible with the idea of bitcoin and mostly like the idea of free banking because a lot of the austrian economists uh, also have this view of the government or the state shouldn't intervene in like private contracts of citizens and their banks and the government shouldn't have like this bureaucracy on top in the form of central bank. And the free banking idea could be very well ported over to Bitcoin and its ecosystem. So that made sense for us.
0: So for listeners who are new to Bitcoin and maybe they don't really see as much of that connection between Bitcoin and Austrian economics. what are some of the key ideas to understand there let's say somebody is new they're trying to listen and learn a bit about Bitcoin what is that connection
1: all right so one of my all-time favorite articles in economics is Hayek's the use of knowledge in society and Hayek who was a part of this Austrian tradition pointed out that prices or the price system is like a knowledge sharing network where the prices communicate information about uh, relative scarcities that are only locally known and in order to have a sufficient uh, division of labor and to be able to cooperate in like large complex society that we have today we need to share these locally known data. And prices do this in the most elegant way, just via a single number. And it's very important over which medium this signal is communicated. And if the medium itself isn't like neutral and isn't and is a subject to intervention by the government via price controls or by the central bank via issuance of credit, then the signal gets polluted with noise. So for me and for lots of Austrians, uh, the basic problem with money being controlled by the state is that the price signals no longer work real well we have investment bubbles we have misallocation of capital we have like the inflation tax in the form of cantillon effect and we need to repair this knowledge sharing network with having a proper medium for it which is money that is neutral Uh, and this is like the most convincing case for me for bitcoin from the austrian point of view because money pervades basically everything we do in a sufficiently complex society and we just need the proper medium for our prices to, co- to convey the economic signals.
0: Now with Hayek, it is interesting because you might be able to argue that Hayek would have seen it more like, oh, there'd be lots of private competing currencies. So in our modern day uh, online discussion, some have speculated that Hayek would have been a shitcoiner, coiner, right? Like he would have been like, oh, about all, about all the different coins and not really seeing this, reason, this driving push towards there being one best one. I'm curious, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you're probably pointing out his denationalization of money. The book that he published towards the end of his life when he actually uh, realized his error because he was making the the error throughout his life where he considered money uh, as something that needs to be regulated by the state. And he realized his error towards the end of his life. But uh, yeah, he argues for... Uh, competing banks to issue their own uh, currencies but he still considered gold as the underlying money uh, which is also why like bitcoiners don't always describe bitcoin as a currency or as a cryptocurrency because it's better defined as money as uh, something like gold used to be in the past and sure we, we can issue Some kind of currencies on top of it, and we could argue that uh, IOUs on exchanges are actually such currencies that may be or maybe not uh, fully fully backed. Uh, But the underlying medium used to be gold. Hayek argued for that, as well as most Austrian uh, economists. And Bitcoin is this underlying form of money nowadays.
0: Yeah, and so. I guess for listeners as well, this is also a point of difference between, let's say, the full reserve banking camp and, let's say, the free banking camp, because that might be a point of difference where, let's say, from the full reserve perspective, they might say these banks or exchanges should not be fractioning, fractionalizing the reserves beyond what they actually have. And there's obviously, in Bitcoin, as as you're well aware, Joseph, there's obviously this strong culture around self-custody of coins. So from your point of view, how do you do you square that circle or do you accept that, let's say, Hypothetically, there could be exchanges out there who are secretly fractionalizing their reserves.
1: Well, it all depends on what the contract says. Like, uh, there are institutions that uh, lend out Bitcoin that Bitcoiners have deposited and they don't lie about it in their terms and yeah. condition. They actually mentioned that it can be uh, take it, uh,
0: Rehypothecated, uh, right. So, yeah. as, so I guess what you're saying is that essentially it's if they are open about it, then from your mm-hmm. point of view, that's not a problem. So let's say yeah. there are providers out there who might be openly rehypothecating and not hiding it. So from your point of view, it's still an issue if a bank or an exchange, a Bitcoin exchange in this case, is lying about it, right? So if they were pretending, no, 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 we're full reserve, we have all the coins we say we do, but actually they don't. And they've been issuing out more IOU claims to their customers. And unfortunately, those customers are the ones who are getting screwed over in that case because they think they've got a claim to, quote-unquote, real Bitcoin that you can claim on-chain, but actually they don't.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the issue. And... Uh... When we actually look into the debate of the free bankers in terms of like how uh, free banking in gold should be managed or the banking system uh, under the gold standard should be managed. So what uh, people like uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto, Larry White, George Selgin, Larry Seacrest, what they actually point out is uh, there isn't a problem with like time deposits if you like lend out your money to the bank and they promise to return your deposit in some time period like after 12 months that's not a problem because uh, the expectations of both sides are aligned the problem is with like uh, current deposits where if you deposit your money into a bank the bank can lend it out and still promises you to uh, pay your deposit or to uh, your ability to withdraw from the bank any time you wish, that uh, doesn't really make sense, and it's kind of sketchy. So, uh, like the full reserve, uh, the one 100% reserve argument, is that if you don't have this time alignment between the uh, creditors and borrowers, something sketchy is going on. And uh, Jesus worked at the Soto actually wrote. Uh, it's how is it called? Uh, like money, Apple, bank credit, um, and economic cycles. Yeah money bank economic cycles which is like uh, most of it is basically like a legal argument it's not really economic uh, he borrows a lot of like legal arguments and makes the case for why uh, fractional reserve banking where there is this time mismatch is a type of fraud basically because uh, these promises cannot be fulfilled.
0: So at the end of the day then, so it remains to be seen what way the ecosystem goes, but we are seeing things like proof of reserves being put out there. So Kraken, obviously one of the world's well-known US exchanges, past sponsor of my show, recently did put out a proof of reserves audit. And I think they got a a firm, I think it was Arminino, who did an audit. And basically customers of Kraken could now check the reserves. So that's an interesting Technology that in some ways now is possible with Bitcoin and so maybe Bitcoin actually changes that debate somewhat
1: Yeah, that could be possible and we probably need to settle this before Bitcoin actually develops any sufficient credit market because nowadays nobody basically takes uh, loans in Bitcoin and uh, So the exchanges aren't faced with like the decision uh, how to match like the borrowers and uh, creditors. Because if somebody borrows Bitcoin nowadays, it's just for shorting Bitcoin. It's not for taking, a, taking it out of the institution and investing it It's in some project, like, like the usual stuff with the banking sector. So yeah, if we like uh, normalize proof of reserves and this idea that uh, all the liabilities should be matched with deposits, Uh, before this credit uh, market develops, that would be great. That's like, then the whole uh, argument about full reserve versus fractional reserve would be settled. It's easy to settle with Bitcoin, with uh, the proof of reserves. And yeah, I I believe that like, uh, Jesus Huerta De Soto's point about uh, the fractional reserve being a sort of fraud is quite right. And uh, we will run into problems If we try to like reconstruct the credit market with fractional reserve principles.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And it's a good point that nowadays, basically, it's not a thing that people are directly borrowing Bitcoin. Really what's going on is it's typically somebody is putting up Bitcoin as collateral and they're borrowing fiat against it. Or in some cases, yes, uh, you know, there there have been instances where let's say there were Bitcoin banks or exchange providers who would loan Bitcoin out. To let's say a trading firm and they're playing this arbitrage game where they can they actually do need to borrow some bitcoin and they might be shorting or they might be doing some other activity that requires them to be able to quickly access this bitcoin liquidity but it it sort of it does come back to that idea of what does the market really want and if the market over time shows hey we want proof of reserves we want full reserve then you know that that's one side now the other side Now, personally, I'm more on the full reserve side myself, of course, but just out of curiosity, let's say there are exchanges out there doing fractional reserve and so on. I guess the question that might be interesting is, will businesses who participate in, let's say, the fractional reserved economy of Bitcoin in that hypothetical world, would they be suspect to, let's say, the business cycle theory or you know, that expansion of credit beyond the amount of voluntary saving? I think that's probably an interesting question. If, if on one side you've got this fully reserved side and on the other side you've got this fractional reserved economy in a Bitcoin economy world, how do you see that playing out? Like, Would you see these businesses on the full reserve side being lacking in competit- competitiveness versus the fractional side because they can access more resources? Or do you think it's actually the other argument would be maybe that side is not sustainable without a central bank to be able to bail out the fractional reserve Mm -hmm. um, side companies who who weren't careful enough, let's say?
1: Yeah, it's uh, probably tough to predict, but the case would be that the fractional reserve institutions would uh, basically be able to offer lower interest rates. So that might be tempting for
0: entrepreneurs and investors yeah. yeah
1: to take credit there on the other hand uh i don't know what the like deposit interest rate would be it would probably be over as well so it wouldn't be as uh interesting to the depositors uh and yeah like the first bank run on such an institution would probably be a wake-up call because as you say there are no bailouts in bitcoin so yeah like there will be uh liquidity crisis there could be like uh you know, bank runs under Bitcoin like Bitcoin banks sort of uh, work but uh, the amount of uh, like errors would not accumulate there would be no bailouts so it would be impossible to bail out uh, the too big to fail like banks and corporations from one recession to the next and we wouldn't have this huge like credit bubble in front of us and uh, yeah, like uh, those who made the mistakes would pay for it. Yeah. Which is as it should be. So the mistakes wouldn't uh, grow grow so large.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting point to make because essentially you're saying, and the argument here is that those irresponsible lenders, let's say the irresponsible, like let's say we, those fractional reserve lenders. The more irresponsible ones would be the ones who go out of business because there are no bailouts. Because there is no central yeah. bank lender of last resort guaranteeing them like there is today in the fiat world with the Federal Reserve and the central banks around the world. So that is an interesting point of difference. I still believe it's going to tip towards the full reserve side, but we have to wait and see what the market chooses, I think.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, and as I pointed out, like uh, we can have sort of like, a, I don't know if it's even called fractional reserve, but... If the expectations between the borrowers and lenders are matched in time, uh, whereas I lend out my money for a fixed time period, that's okay. Like, uh, the, the institution can, of course, like lend it out to them. And this doesn't lead to a risk of bank run because I cannot redeem my deposit before it's due. So. Uh, This is probably how the ecosystem will develop, like there will be more time deposits and less of like this risky fractional reserve lending.
0: Back to the show in a moment. If you want to get started easily with Bitcoin mining, Compass Mining is the world's first and largest online marketplace for Bitcoin mining hardware, hosting and ASIC reselling. Bitcoin mining is only getting bigger and so is Compass Mining. Compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year alone with more to come. That's six times the current hosting capacity. So with Compass, anyone can mine Bitcoin. You can go and select a machine, have that shipped to your home if you're in the US, or you can use the hosted facilities which have been vetted by the team and offer a more competitive power rate than you might be getting in your residential power rates. So go to the website compassmining.io. CoinKite.com are the creators of my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Cold Card. Now, the Cold Card is a little calculator-sized device. You can directly plug it to your computer if you're a beginner, and you can use it easily with wallets like Spectre, Sparrow, Electrum, and others. And if you're intermediate or advanced, you can use a microSD card to bring information back and forth between your Cold Card and your computer and do it in an air gapped way. The Cold Card offers all sorts of features, You can use special pins such as the BrickMe pin, a special pin that will actually brick the device when you enter it. So these kinds of things give you options and tools that you can use as part of your security setup. And don't forget, you also need to think about metal backup plates for your 24 seed words. And the CoinKite team also sell seed plate, which is a metal seed backup. So go to CoinKite.com and order your gear there. And finally, if you're thinking about upgrading to multi-signature, but you're not sure about how to do this, Unchained Capital can help you here. So with Unchained, you can bring two hardware wallets and set up your vault on the website. Now, if you need guidance, they've got a concierge onboarding program. And as part of this program, you'll pay up front, you'll receive the hardware wallets, and you'll have a video call to teach you how to actually do this, even if you've never held your private keys before. And the cool thing here is you are removing single points of failure. So this gives you more of an ability to sleep soundly at night, knowing that You can still make one mistake and still not lose all your coins. So go to unchanged.com, go to the concierge onboarding program, use the code Levera for a discount on that. And now back to the show. I'm also curious while we're here, the difference in, let's say, borrowing and debt culture might be very different. Like let's say it moves into a fully full reserve world. The way I'm seeing it is it's really going to be massively more of an equity driven world as opposed to debt driven, because you would own a stake in things as opposed to borrowing because borrowing like... Hypothetically, the interest rates would just be so high to borrow that it's just going to change the way things operate. But let's say we lived in that hypothetical Bitcoin fractionalized world, where let's say there's a bunch of openly hyper- rehypothecating banks or Bitcoin exchanges, whatever you want to call them. Do you believe that credit market would look a little closer to today than compared to, let's say, that hypothetical equity world?
1: Yeah, credit markets would probably deflate a lot, like uh, the amount of uh, issued debt would be much lower. And on the other hand uh, like it would be probably closer to uh, what is called like Islamic banking today where uh, if you want to invest into some venture you don't actually lend out money you just uh, buy a portion of the equity. So like direct equity investment would probably take precedence over credit. Uh, and uh, like this may sound harsh for example like for Individuals, the biggest uh, loan we undertake in our life is usually mortgage. And it's like to say that we would have to uh, save up for our houses uh, nowadays that's crazy because uh, the houses costs like uh, 10 or 20 years worth of our wage but the problem is mm, the real estate market is heavily inflated with the country loan effect and all the new money being issued and uh, most of it or a lot of it is flowing into real estate so we could be able to save up for our housing in a span of like a few few years if our like money's purchasing power didn't evaporate so fast, and if uh, there was there wasn't this uh huge uh, credit expansion that flows into real estate markets so that the prices would fall, so these two effects combined higher purchasing power over time and lower inflation of the assets would lead to like big purchases for individuals and investments as well. To be more approachable to be more accessible for people and businesses so yeah we cannot function otherwise nowadays uh, than just going into credit but it will basically uh, flip over under like a sound money standard where it would make more sense to wait a few years save up and then invest or buy some housing
0: yeah. that's And as you're saying, the price of housing has gone ridiculous. And so because of the multiple of the annual salary of the average person or the median person, it's just out of reach for a lot of people without taking on credit. And it's interesting that people want bull markets in property or or they want they want housing to be affordable, but they don't want their own houses to be affordable, right? They want their own house to keep going up in value. And so no. it's like, where is this going to end? Of course, I think as the world adopts a Bitcoin standard, the relative valuations of property, house prop housing and things will have to come down. I think it'll just have to normalize but there will be a lot of people who are not happy about that because, like we said, they want housing to be affordable in general. They like the idea. But when, if, if you ask someone, do you want your house to become more affordable that you already <laughs> own? <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, that's uh, the problem with like misallocation of capital. And we had so much of it in the past 50 years or maybe even 100 years that uh, there is no way around economic loss. And in the end, uh, like all debts have to be paid and the Capital that was misallocated needs to be properly allocated in the end. So uh, yeah, like uh, the path itself to like hyper bitcoinization is going to be painful for lots of sectors a lot of people, because we don't have a proper store of value right now that would be neutral, neutral that wouldn't be subject to some jurisdiction, uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a recipient of like the Cantillon effect. And as we discover such a neutral store of value instrument in the form of Bitcoin, and as the capital sort of flows back because we had this uh, throughout history in the form of gold and silver. And uh, like right now, we are in the intermission, in the monetary intermission uh, with this crazy experiment of fiat money. So, as the capital flows back and people discover, like rediscover the store of value in the form of sound money, that's going to be painful for a lot of people who didn't get the message and who ignore this.
0: And if you think about the typical balance sheet of a lot of current banks, their assets are these mortgages and these mortgages are denominated in fiat terms and so they could really be in a lot of trouble if they don't go out and buy bitcoin
1: yeah yeah that's like a situation it's very hard to get out of especially if you're a regulated financial institution because you you usually cannot invest in bitcoin or stuff like that you are forced to hold uh like government bonds to hold these mortgages and you just have to uh, sit on this sinking ship without like uh, having any lifeboat to jump into. So uh, yeah, that's a very tough spot. And it seems like the central banks are sort of realizing that the banking sector is sort of doomed. And you have probably seen uh, the proposals to have CBDC that basically circumvents the banking sector, where like the commercial banks are basically no longer needed so like it's uh it's crazy being in these banks even understanding what's going on and there are like uh banks like saxo bank i believe where they sometimes issue like high quality analysis even uh, concerning bitcoin and i i'm i already don't know like what's the exit plan there like how can they save themselves
0: well, I guess the longer term plan is that uh, they they will have to be fire sold and someone's going to be buying them and recapitalizing the banks and resetting them up in a new way, in a Bitcoin friendly way, let's say. Now, you mentioned economic laws earlier and one of your articles, you wrote about this idea of Nakamoto Gresham's law. So I guess before we get into that, do you want to first explain for people what is Gresham's law?
1: Sure it's uh, actually one of the oldest economic insights uh, by Thomas Gresham in like 16th century and he witnessed how like uh, the co-circulation of two types of money, what sort of dynamic it produces. So uh, Gresham said like a uh, bad coin and good coin cannot uh, circulate together. And the Gresham's law is usually stated as bad money drives out good, meaning that people prefer to spend this bad money first and hold on to the good money for long-term. And this doesn't actually tell us that much, like what is bad money, what is good money, and what does it mean that it drives out the other type of money. So I like uh, Mari Rothbard's definition, who restated Gresham's Insight as uh, money overvalued by government drives out of circulation money undervalued by government and usually Gresham's law is applied to the bimetallism era in the united states throughout 19th century where uh, the the government uh, basically fixed the ratio between the two metals between gold and silver so that the ratio was 15 to 1 15 uh, silver ounces to one gold ounce but the problem was uh, the market ratio between these two metals deviated from the official government definition. So one of these metals was always undervalued uh, in the form of coins uh, when compared to the other metal. So when silver was undervalued, gold was used as the medium of exchange and silver was uh, driven out of circulation, meaning it was used as a store of value.
0: Right. So I I guess one clarification there is that it's, I think Rothbard wrote about Gresham's Law being and explaining it like it's actually just a specialized instance of the general problem with price controls. And so what happens is if the government puts the price controls in, puts price controls in place, especially if those price controls aren't reflective of the market reality around that, then what happens is, to think one way to think about it is people just decide well it's better for me to hold this one and spend that one because this one the government has mandated that merchants accept this gold or silver at this specific exchange ratio which is out of whack is out of price and so they they decide to hold the one obviously keeping more value for themselves so could you just explain a little bit about this nakamoto gresham's law
1: yeah yeah and thank you for that point it's a good insight that uh it's actually an instance of price control where you have surpluses on one side and shortages on the other so the nakamoto gresham's law i i was thinking about how gresham's law is actually applicable to bitcoin and bitcoiners sometimes invoke this gresham's law to describe like the relationship between fiat and bitcoin but the problem is the original gresham's law only works if the government sets the ratio between the two currencies. And uh, the state today, it basically regulates the value of fiat, but it doesn't regulate the value of Bitcoin. So we have like state money on one side and the non-state money on the other side. So Gresham's law isn't really applicable. But we can sort of salvage uh, Gresham's law and it's useful inside if we drop like the a condition that uh, the government has to set the ratio between the two types of money and instead we look into how the monetary policy policy the issuance schedule of the two types of monies play out in the future and what's the expectation on the future value and we know that fiat is basically it has no limit in issuance the central bank along with the banking sector can issue as much dollars as possible. We have central bankers saying that uh, on air actually. And when we consult like the uh, M2 money aggregator, we can see it's actually exponential. Uh, there's more and more dollars in issuance. And we also know that Bitcoin's monetary policy is actually quite the opposite. It's flattening over long term and there will be just 21 million. It has a fixed schedule. So when we sort of uh, take this into account, we can say that fiat is going to decrease in value forever. Uh, That's just the nature of fiat's monetary policy. And we can also say that Bitcoin is going to increase in value forever, especially in terms of fiat currencies. So the Nakamoto greshams Law then says that Bitcoin drives out fiat as a store of value. And fiat in turn drives out Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Because if we still have some fiat to spend, we want to spend this first. And if you have an access to Bitcoin, we want to save in Bitcoin. And it doesn't make sense to do it otherwise, if we have both of these types of monies. It just makes sense to spend fiat and huddle Bitcoin. So that's like an, Economic explanation why huddling Bitcoin is very rational, and we don't have to actually come up with any new insights, just use the insights we already have and accommodate it to this dynamic of state and non state money.
0: Yes, yeah, so holding Bitcoin is rational, so that's, uh, that's out there for everyone to think about. And so, you also mentioned that there are some preconditions to this. So, uh, what are those preconditions to make this? viable or to make this true oh
1: yeah sure so i came up with two conditions for the nakamoto gresham's law and first one that we still uh, have to earn some fiat and still have some fiat to spend because if we only earn bitcoin then of course bitcoin becomes the medium of exchange as well because we have to pay for our rent and food and such. And the other one is that fiat is still usable for our transactions. Because it could be the case that I'm making uh, some wage in fiat terms, but I cannot actually purchase stuff that I need to buy. Like if I'm in some developing country and I need to do some cross-border transactions and the banking system isn't there or uh, it's sanctioned or stuff like that then i have to use bitcoin so the two conditions is i still have to earn some fiat and the, the other one is fiat still works as a medium of exchange to satisfy my needs which is not the case for some bitcoiners and for some countries so spending bitcoin is actually rational as well if you do not meet these two conditions, if uh, your earnings are just in Bitcoin and if, for example, you're in Venezuela and you cannot buy like medical drugs uh, from abroad and you need to find means of exchange that facilitate that and that's uh, that could be Bitcoin.
0: So essentially, yeah, as you're saying, basically, for people who still have fiat income and they can still spend fiat income, well then, okay, it's it, it still applies. But let's say somebody is all in Bitcoin and they only earn Bitcoin, well then, obviously they're going to have to spend some. Yep. But these are only these are a small number of people. Uh, but of course, it that even that number of people is growing over time, and it still contributes to that overall network effect, being able to spend Bitcoin. Um, but I think the important part is, as you're saying, it's how many people are hodling. Bitcoin
1: yeah yeah uh, like I get the argument with the need to build up circular economies but that's more like an ideological argument like uh, I am happy to spend Bitcoin with a merchant as a weight of support if I know the merchant is going to hold on to Bitcoin but uh, i don't do it because it's more convenient convenient for me or more comfortable or anything because uh, like payment systems in czech republic are heavily advanced we have like credit and debit cards we have nfc payments apple pay and stuff and that's very comfortable so um, i don't need another paypal i don't need other another like a uh, fast medium of exchange because we have instant transfers here uh, what i need is a proper predictable store of value for like long-term preservation of my purchasing power. So the economic uh, incentive for me is to hold on to Bitcoin and spend fiat. And sure, there could be like an ideological case of uh, spending Bitcoin, but it's not economical. It's not uh, like uh, based in economics.
0: Great. And so in your view, then, is it a problem? that Bitcoin is not widely used directly as medium of exchange?
1: Well, it's used as a medium of exchange where it makes sense. Like for the cross-border payments, uh, for payments where I need an increased level of privacy and I'm actually able to like use Bitcoin in a private manner. For like recently in Canada, we saw that fiat can actually be become quite useless as a medium of exchange if your accounts are frozen. So in that instance it makes sense to use Bitcoin because you cannot use anything else. But usually even in those cases if you still have some cash then cash is the king because it's very private. It's basically censorship resistant but you have to be able to physically hand it over. So Bitcoin as a medium of exchange makes sense when when it has some benefit over spending fiat could be privacy censorship resistance and like we are not going to increase the adoption of bitcoin and we are not going to uh, arrive at hyper bitcoinization with like altruistic payments we need the economic incentives to work and the economic incentives right now in the western countries at least lead us to hodling bitcoin and spending fiat
0: Especially in the case where there are capital gains taxes involved, Uh, but in some countries they don't have capital gains taxes or in some certain situations it might make sense. So an interesting one to see where that develops. Also wanted to get your thoughts, I know you're a treasurer of course, and you also wrote a little bit about Taproot and hardware wallets. So can you just give an overview, what kind of benefits do you see coming with Taproot for hardware wallet users.
1: Sure, so the main benefit for Trezor and for hardware wallets in general is Taproot makes uh, CoinJoin practical. Uh, It was possible to like construct these CoinJoin transactions before with hardware wallets, but they would have to be very small in size. So it wouldn't help that much with privacy. And with Taproot, uh, due to like uh, technical obstacles of legacy transactions it was impossible to construct these coin transactions and with Taproot it becomes possible and practical so we in Trezor are working uh, on the coinjoin implementation it's going to be based on the Wabi-Sabi protocol of, and uh, throughout this year we should introduce it, this in our Trezor suite which is the accompanying app for Trezor and that's the main benefit of taproot in hardware wallets for now. And in the future, uh, the benefits would be, uh, the, like having the ability to, let me mention one other thing. Uh, the other good benefit is, uh, of course, any kind of multi signature transactions, which become cheaper and more private. Uh, but in case like people don't, uh, perform these transactions, then like the, most interesting benefit will be opening up and closing and managing lightning network channels because these transactions are multi as well so these will become cheaper and more private as well
0: yeah so there may be also a fee saving as well for the uh, taproot transactions and hopefully it will make coin joins uh, a little bit cheaper in the future with especially with the ag- the uh, cross input signature aggregation so listeners can check out the earlier episode i did uh it was a tab conf episode with some bitcoin core developers so that one's called bitcoin on chain scaling so listeners who are interested in that you can check that episode Yeah, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the developments around hardware wallets and what's coming with uh, Taproot. Now the Taproot has been activated. Uh, Do you see it being similar to how SegWit took a long time to get activated across the ecosystem? Or do you see actually this time it'll be a bit faster or a bit better? (sighs)
1: Yeah, uh it should be a bit faster because from like a technological standpoint, it's not that hard to implement Taproot if you already implemented SegWit. And on the other hand, with SegWit, we had a Lightning Network in line. And uh, we know that SegWit was activated in summer 2017. And uh, the first Lightning Network transactions were live in uh, spring 2000. 2000- 11 uh 2018 if i'm not mistaken so that was quite a short uh time period in between uh, and hopefully coinjoin and hardware wallets will provide the same incentive for the ecosystem to adopt taproot faster because we need the use case we need uh, like the incentive to actually implement it and use it right now there's not that many use cases. It could be multi but coin joins are probably going to be the major, major reason for implementing and actually using Taproot, such as Lightning was with SegWit.
0: Also, on the multi signature aspect with Taproot, there is the Music2 protocol, and this is obviously still being worked on by some of the guys like Tim Ruffing and Jonas Nick. Is there any thought there around what that might look like from a hardware wallets point of view? Like, would a hardware wallets implement that, or or is it? I mean, obviously, it's still early days, but is that something being looked at on the on the development track?
1: not to my knowledge and i will have to disappoint you here because i'm not really familiar with uh, music as such uh, what i'm kind of excited about is uh, as you mentioned before cross input signature ag- aggregation but that's probably years away because it requires like a, it would require another software yeah, another soft fork. so that's that's really interesting and then like l2 for lightning network improvements and I'm really not sure if that's possible today or requires another soft work as well.
0: Oh yeah, so it would basically require either Anyprevout or I believe CTV might also be able to enable something similar, mm-hmm. but, and there might be, I think the developers are chatting about some other ways, but I think basically Anyprevout is the main one uh, before we could get L2. So we'll have to see about that one. Um, for listeners interested in Anyprevout, check out episode 200 and uh, Yeah, I guess. So those are probably the key questions I had. So I guess summarizing like there's been a bunch of chat about Austrian economics and fractional reserve banking and full reserve banking and how that will apply into a Bitcoin world and what it might look like credit and debt wise in that world. Uh, And then we've spoken a little bit about Gresham's Law and the Nakamoto Gresham's Law, and how it's rational to hodl Bitcoin. Do you have any thoughts you want to leave listeners with, and uh, where can people find you online?
1: Yeah, uh, for me, it's always important, and I always remind people to basically zoom out, especially if anything's happening to the price, uh, because like uh, every dip becomes uh, very shallow with sufficient zoom. Uh, So zoom out, uh, learn about why Bitcoin matters, why there's a good case to be made that it's actually uh, global non-state money and why it makes sense to, like, as Satoshi said, get some in case it takes off and it seems like it's taking off quite well. And sure, um, I'm at, uh, I'm on Twitter as at uh, Seth Joseph, I write for Bitcoin magazine, you can find my uh, Bitcoin magazine articles under my name, Josef Cetek. And uh, yeah, I was really happy to be here and hope I'll meet you in Prague or Miami or on some of these conferences.
0: Yeah, hope to see you there. Thanks very much, Joseph. Thank you. So now that you understand more about Gresham's Law and how it applies, make sure you share this show with your family and friends so they too can learn about Bitcoin. The website is stephanlevera.com. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels.